0: We really did have to, to look at moving upstream probably earlier than some businesses, and it was a very good decision for us to move into serving larger and larger clients. And I think that that's a tough, a tough you know, decision point that a lot of entrepreneurs reach. But I have a very simple model for it, which is um, you, know, you, you really look at your – you track your customer acquisition and cost and your sales you know, timing investment for each client. And if you're picking up clients that are three times larger and they don't take three times larger, to cl- three times more effort to close, you know, you, you, you will, uh, focus your business upstream.
1: Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to growth everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text Quick Tips to three three four four four. That's the word QUIC, Quick Q U I C K and Tips T I P S S's in sugar to three three four four four, and you get instant access. Okay, everyone. Today we are talking to the CEO of Gov Delivery, Scott Burns, which. GovDelivery is basically a digital communications platform exclusively for governments, and they have sold to over 1,000 public sector organizations around the world. Scott, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for being on the show. So why don't you talk a little bit about your background first, and then we can jump into what exactly GovDelivery does.
0: Sure. Um, you know, my my background, I, I started GovDelivery in 2000. And, um, you know, I was, I was a pretty young guy, it was the end of the dot-com boom, and um, I would jokingly say that most of my background was, you know, uh, K through 12 prior to getting to delivery. But I did a couple of things that were interesting. Uh, one is, when I, was in, uh, when I was in college, I was in college in New Hampshire, and I actually got really involved in grassroots organizing. And, found basically I was on one of the first connected campuses and everybody had this thing called blitzmail. It was like an early version of email. And, um, I started working with friends to basically use, use blitzmail, use that early version of email to get a lot more people engaged in the political conversations on campus. And we pull in all kinds of different people. And we took this really small group where nobody would show up at events at all. And basically, um, just killed it. Got a whole bunch of people participating in the events and ultimately volunteering and different things. And so I had that interest back then in politics, but also an awareness of you know that connectedness and what it could do to impact politics and maybe public sector someday. And then I uh, I went off to McKinsey. Uh, worked at McKinsey for a couple years, and again, it's that kind of dot com era opportunity drew me in to work at a, an early SaaS business that was doing renter screening. And we took that from eight people up to 40. It's very, very successful. Ultimately went on to a successful exit, but I left after a year and went back to this sort of idea that connectedness was a real, it, sort of an insanely great opportunity for uh, the public sector to connect better with the public. So I got out of the politics side of it and more into the, the citizen experience, citizen services. And um, you know I've been doing it ever since, um, ever since that time.
1: Got it. Okay, great. So, can you talk a little bit about kind of how your your experiences brought you to gov delivery and you know how the whole idea came about?
0: Sure. So, we when I left uh, when I left that sort of startup back in 2000 in Colorado, I had started a business on the side with a friend where we were the idea was to put government documents online and to digitize them and sell them off. And we were doing that as sort of a side business venture, trying it out and, and gaining a little bit of traction. And I came back here and we we thought, you know, what if we what if we could build some software and instead of us putting government documents online and selling them off, what if we could help the government communicate more directly with people? And so we had you know nothing more than a than a PowerPoint presentation or something on a scratch pad about this idea, and somebody came in from the city. City of Saint Paul, where we're located, showed some interest in it, and basically we got them to agree to be our first customer, and then of course had to build the software from there, and um, and really help them communicate with the public more effectively, build a bigger audience, and took that concept from that level in 2000 with a lot of uh, you know a lot of issues along the way. Obviously, it took some time, but now we serve every federal agency. Um, we serve, you know, public sector entities as small as little parks and up to the largest government agencies in the world doing basically the same thing, connecting with more people, getting people to act, basically bringing the marketing funnel to government agencies, reach a lot of people, get them to do what you want.
1: Got it. Okay. So what would be like a practical, practical, uh, you know, real life example, let's say I'm the DMV, you know, how, how do you guys come in and help out?
0: Sure. Um, so if you're the DMV, you wanna you wanna get more people let's say you wanna get more people to use your online services so when somebody's in person or on your website showing interest in renewing their driver's license you might try to get them to put in their email address like basic lead form kind of thing that you would do in a private company so we would help you get that lead form set up find out the email address find out what you know what Eric's interested in get them to sign up give you some information and then we would help you promote the online services to Eric so the next time instead of coming to the DMV in person he does it online. Um, We also would send reminders when you know you need to renew your license. We might send information about add-on services that the DMV offers and it it would depend on the state, but maybe they're promoting safety information. Maybe they're the ones in charge of license plates. Uh, You know there's all kinds of there's all kinds of things that the DMV can do and it applies to every government agency. Every government agency wants and needs you to do something, you know, pay your taxes online, get a flu shot, visit the park, enroll your kid in the literacy program. And we're the ones involved in capturing the information and then getting, you know, marketing those services.
1: Got it. Okay. Makes sense. And can you talk about, you know, number of customers today and how revenues are?
0: Sure. Um, So we're, we, uh, we've been growing really nicely over the last two years and Um, Now we're over well over a thousand public sector agencies that use the service. And again, it includes, includes agencies in every federal department across 50 States, a lot of cities and counties and transit agencies um, all over. And then we do a lot of work in Europe, um, particularly concentrated in the UK. So the UK parliament uses our service, but so does the European space agency, and um, all kinds of different groups over there. So over a thousand um, public sector organizations, we don't, we don't. Uh, we have a lot of really big ones, but we also will work with small cities, even if they want to use our service. And the revenues, you know, we've never been because of the client base and and uh, you know the challenges we faced with with extremely rapid revenue acceleration that you might see at some companies. We've really been in it for the long haul. We've grown every year for fifteen years, and the revenue growth has been you know twenty to forty percent basically every year. Um, and now we're. We're above 30 million revenue this year.
1: Nice. Okay. And, you know, I, I read something on, you know, the Huffington Post where it, the headline was over 100 million people, you know, probably use GovDelivery and don't realize it. Is that true?
0: It is. Um, we just had a, an awesome celebration here because we, we crossed that 100 million mark. So that means 100 million unique signups across our government client base um, for different kinds of updates. Um, have come have come in through gov delivery. We have over 100 million active. It's a lot more than that have come in. Obviously, there's been some churn too, and um, and we just crossed that threshold. We actually just announced that this week, so it was a it's a huge number. And you know, you think about this age old problem of government connecting with the public and how well marketers have been able to solve you know problems of reaching people directly in the private sector. We've been privileged to to basically bring those approaches and that kind of, um, connection mentality, um, into the public sector. And when we, when we do our job, right, you know, more people get immunized and, you know, more people sign their kids up for school on time. It's it's pretty rewarding work.
1: Nice. Okay. You you know, it's really, I mean, I'm sure people are wondering in in the audience right now, you know, it's, People, you know, do, you know, a lot of these marketing things and sales tactics that are working really well in the private sector because the companies can move quickly. But, you know, you guys have to sell to you, you guys not only have to do enterprise sales, but you guys have to sell to government agencies that typically move very slowly. So what does that look like for you guys?
0: Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent. I always have been of, of lean thinking and, and trial and error. And, uh, and so the first thing it looks like is uh, try a lot of things. But, you know, don't beat your head against the wall. And so um, we use a lot of the same techniques that you would use if you are selling to private industry. You know, a lot of content marketing, a lot of social media advertising. We do a lot of um, things to sort of cultivate a really strong referral network, um, in-person user groups, user tours, online events, those kinds of things. So in that respect, it doesn't look much different. Where I think we've taken – a different view in a couple of respects is, is we put a much more aggressive focus on keeping the clients we have. You know, we are in a we are in a constrained client base in the public sector. It's a big client base, but it's constrained. And so we put probably more emphasis on retention than the average company. And that's a, that allows us to take the long view with the client. It also does put us under some pressure to deliver new products and services because Um, you know, rather than having a really effective engine for going out and getting that next city to sign up, we focus on delivering great services to that city so that they'll buy more things with us. And that means, you know, we've had to branch out into some learning capabilities, some data management capabilities and other things that probably have led us to being a little less focused than we would have been if we just had a new customer
1: acquisition engine, like uh, some companies are able to build. Got it. And what does that retention number look like for you?
0: So on a dollar basis, we're, we're well over hundred percent, um, on a, on a logos basis, we've run between 96 and hundred percent over time. Um, most of the churn is with smaller clients, uh, when we lose them. And so we've been very effective at retaining the large clients, which has led to, you know, terrific, uh, retention on a dollar basis. And, and, um, yeah, we've been able to hold in the high nineties, basically year in year out, even in, in the recession.
1: Got it. That's a, that's super impressive. I, I think what would be helpful to everyone is to maybe understand, you know, when is it the right time to start, you know, adding and learning new capabilities to, you know, make your customers happy because you have customers across different verticals, right? So what does that process look like from a high level?
0: You know, um, there's there's two interesting processes we've been through. The first was we really did have to, to look at moving upstream, Probably earlier than some businesses, and it was a very good decision for us to move into serving larger and larger clients. And I think that that's a tough, a tough, you know, decision point that a lot of entrepreneurs reach. But I have a very simple model for it, which is, um, you know, you, you really look at your, you track your customer acquisition cost and your sales, you know, timing investment for each client. And if you're picking up clients that are three times larger, and they don't take three times larger to cl- three times more effort to close, you know, you 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 will uh, focus your business upstream. So we made that decision to move more enterprise, um, I think later than we should have, but we really started putting the focus on it in about all four. Um, and, and it's been more and more of a focus over time. Basically moving into larger clients has, has always paid off for us. And so we, we continue to have an effort in that area. And then the process of um, adding new capabilities, you know, um, when we first came you know came on the you know scene in 2000 it was pretty hard to build new killer software capabilities and i I think we would handle this problem differently now than we did back then but what happened to us is you know we were around for you know a long time seven eight years the technology got a little dated we actually made a, a pretty dangerous decision but decided to rebuild it so we rebuilt it on ruby on rails you know i i would um I would say that any CEO who rebuilds software should expect to lose their job (laughs) if you do a big rewrite. But I kept my job. We were able to get it done. The team did a great job. Coming out of that, we then had a good platform for adding new new capabilities on top of it. And we um, started testing new capabilities that way, and then we also started experimenting with licensing some outside capabilities that we might bring in, and also looking at acquisitions. We have found in a SaaS environment that the licensing was a good way to test whether people wanted to buy more things from us, but it wasn't a really great solution for us because those products didn't work as elegantly with our core solution. Mm. Um, So we actually veered from there into more package services, uh, recurring services, not training and implementation, but more kind of helping the client fish year in and year out. Um, And we've been very successful with package services. I think a lot of entrepreneurs – you away from services but when you can get them on a recurring basis they can be really powerful. So we've liked those and of course that takes little or no engineering so, so that's nice. And then um, and, and then we through a couple of small acquisitions basically brought in some interactive texting capability recently, uh, open data management and we also um, have organically launched some learning some learning solutions because what we found is our clients were driving a lot of traffic to online trainings. That were um, that were atrocious and we wanted to get into that space for that reason so we've been pretty aggressive and it's you know it's a it's a pretty big solution set for what's still a relatively small company but basically we found our clients wanted to buy and that the cost of doing more work with existing clients was just so much less the cost of acquisition and going out and getting new ones that it was worth shifting energy into new solutions and bringing them on through acquisition or through building things
1: Okay. So when you, when you talk about package services, uh, it it sounds like you maybe were, um, you know, in the past you were using these licenses, maybe you were, you know, doing more like affiliate deals and partnerships and things like that. When you do package services, are these, are these partnerships with outside companies or are these services that you guys run?
0: Um, You know, we made the decision to deliver the services and, uh, and we, we really have, so the kinds of services we offer would be like, you know, we'll be working with the health department. And we'll realize, and I think this is really common in the SaaS, SaaS arena in general, is a lot of companies and a lot of the public sector organizations we serve will buy software and only get like 20% value out of it. You know, if you look at, like you could take a, a lead pages or a Marketo or whatever, and you know, their clients are using the software. Maybe they're even happy with it, but they're getting a, a fraction of the value they could get. And we basically found the same thing. And so we looked at the, the areas where our clients really struggled to get maximum value. And one was um, audience growth. So just doing, pulling the leverage they needed to pull to really build up their lists and their audience. And the second one was ongoing campaign management their campaigns. You know, they did a good job getting the bus alerts out and the, you know, service notices and all that stuff. But, you know, you take a health department, if they have a major campaign on, getting teams to quit smoking um, they really benefit from engaging our services team to handle that campaign and we've been able to get some good recurring contracts to do that work
1: got it okay yeah makes total sense Um, all right now the in terms of in in terms of user acquisition and and I'm just wondering you know what is something you guys are doing that is unique to acquire more customers today I know you guys have made a few acquisitions as well so maybe that might be an interesting topic
0: um, yeah, you know, we've done well, there's, there's two ways we get involved in user acquisition. One is get more people signed up, and, and then obviously helping us get more clients. With, the, with getting, helping our clients get more people signed up, the thing we've done that's most unique is we, we created something called the Gov Delivery Network, which is basically to simplify it, you know, for, for your uh, listeners, it's basically a co reg uh, network within government so that anybody who signs up for updates from the state of Minnesota can sign up for updates from the city of Minneapolis at the same time. Anybody who signs up for updates from the Centers for Disease Control can sign up for updates from federal emergency management at the same time. Mm. And that, that co-reg has been extraordinarily powerful, and we found, we found that people just have a huge uh, inclination to be willing to sign up to more things you know, once they're in that sign-up process, particularly when they're related. And I think I know that it's harder to do this in uh private sector, but I think it's a really untapped area for list building. And so um, we've, we've looked at different ways of actually using it for our own customer acquisition, but it's worked brilliantly for our users because they aren't, they aren't competitors with each other. And I think that anybody who's looking at list growth techniques, customer acquisition techniques, and can find the right co-reg partner, um, there's a lot to be gained there. Yeah. That's probably the biggest lever um, for us. The, the The couple of areas that have led you know to getting um, to getting more clients so one is a lot more you know people talk about advert advertorial work um, and different kinds of content that they're creating. I really find that the the training kind of content works best for us so whether it's in person or online um, we spend a lot of time giving away content you know, we don't charge for it but, we don't expect, we don't have an immediate expectation of what somebody gives us in return, but we run a lot of, we run a lot of mini seminars in our office, um, online, and um, in person, we'll even hold, you know, big user conferences. We've done a lot of tours nationally and in the UK, and that's really the area in our sort of, you know, fairly vertical market. Um, that's the area where we just get the most leverage. and We can get clients in a virtual room together or on or participating in person together in a training with prospects, we're always winning.
1: Makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, now, what's one big struggle you faced while growing this business?
0: Uh, I would say that uh, one of the struggles is culture and how to maintain a, a sort of high growth entrepreneurial culture in a business that's, that's around for a longer period of time. So that, that's obviously easy to do in the startup phase, but when you go through you know, a couple recessions some slower growth periods, um, and other things, I think, uh, I think that you're, you know, it's easy to lose that sort of high growth, uh, energetic innovators culture. And so, um, uh, that's been a struggle for us. You know, I've done a couple of things to, to sort of reboot the culture over time. Um, one is I think in, uh, beginning in, in about, uh, 08, 09, we sort of changed out our investment structure a little bit and, um, we had a good sit down with the people who've been around for a long time and we, um, we basically said, look, we're taking this business to the next level and um, anybody who, who doesn't want to sort of reboot their energy level and participate in that, this would be a good time to leave. And a lot of people did. Um, and we brought in talent that, you know, was excited and felt fresh about the business and we kept the people who wanted to go to the next level. Um, and so we've, we've really tried to be intentional about keeping a, a a growth, a constant growth and in innovation culture um, in order to to keep that energy going over time, even as the, the natural, you know, slightly slower development that happens in the public sector market and just you know the the struggles you have as you build a business over a 10 or 15 year period instead of over a two or three year period materialize. So that's that's the biggest one. And I'll tell you that if you walked around here now, we have more of a startup culture and an innovator's culture at gum delivery today than we had in 2005 when we were a fraction of this size.
1: Wow. Okay. You, you, know, what's, you know what's interesting? It, what kind of popped into my head? You know, Tony Hsieh, you know, talks about um, you know, paying people to leave if they no longer think they're a fit. So I, I'm guessing, you know, if, if you, well, I'm not guessing, I'm wondering, you know, how did that conversation go exactly? Can you go into a little more detail?
0: sure um in 09 when we changed the investment structure one of the things I set up is that everybody with um, with options in the company was set up to get liquidity at that time and uh, that meant that you know if you stayed you'd be staying for a new a new deal but you you would have already gotten the money out of the time you put in um, so I think that was really important it basically follows that exact same concept um, the other thing with the conversations is, these conversations are always easier to have when the job market is strong and interesting to people than when the job market's weaker. And so you know when we see the job market heating up, um, we, we, we're pretty aggressive about making sure that people who who we feel have uh, sort of lost their edge and, and need a chance to go contribute somewhere else. Um, making sure they know that, and we have transparent conversations with them. And then the other thing is that we're very aggressive at promoting people internally and giving them new responsibilities when they're doing, doing really well. And um, you know, I think all good companies have some way of doing this but you know, we're in the Midwest and we're serving a market that's not always the fastest moving market. I think we've had to be very intentional to make sure that we don't, that don't lose that edge over time. And that sometimes means uh, some, some harder conversations and making the effort on things like liquidity when you're at a breaking point so that people can leave without feeling like they've given something up.
1: Got it. Okay. Makes sense. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25 year old self?
0: Um, you know, when I, when I look back, I, I think, uh, I think I would have worked harder to scale the things that were working. I think that I, I invested a lot of a lot of energy and put a lot of eggs in different baskets. I would have liked to put um, I would have liked to sort of use those eggs more carefully and drop more of them into a couple of baskets. That's actually something again, you know, it's bizarre. But as we've gotten bigger, we've gotten better at taking a couple big bets at a time rather than spreading ourselves too thin. And you know, 25 year old me just thought um, as long as we had an idea, we should try it out. Um, And you can do that to a certain degree if you're lean, but you know, you can't, you can't spread your team across 25 ideas at a time. And, uh, you know, if I could go back and, and basically uh, give that guy a talking to, he would be a lot more focused.
1: Got it. So it, it sounds like it's really about, you know, finding the things that are, you know, working well that have traction and really 10xing or 100xing effort on those, right?
0: That's exactly right. And you know, that, that thinking, i thinking, I think people are clearer on that as a strategy today than, than, than maybe people were back in 2005. Um, but you know what, if I could, uh, if I, if I could go back in time and make those decisions better, I would, and you know, I'm, I'm lucky because not a lot of entrepreneurs make it 15 years in the same business. Um, so I'm able to write a lot of these wrongs
1: today. Got it. Okay. So what does an ideal day look like for Scott? You know, how do you structure your day? Uh, That's a great question. I, I, um, I
0: think, you know, I have this philosophy, you know, the only thing, the most precious resource is time. And so I try to be very deliberate about how I structure the day. Um, I, I, in an ideal world, I'm spending about a third of my time with customers and on sort of customer related prospect related work. And I, in a typical year, I have in-person conversations with 100 or more customers. So I take that very seriously. I was on the road 42 weeks last year. Um, I think you just have to go see people and engage with them or you lose your edge. Um, the, the second, I'm trying to cut back that travel a little, by the way, because I do have three young kids at home. So <laughs> I got to see them too. Um, but this, So that's the first thing is trying to keep a third of the time focused on customers, a third focused on our people. And a third focused on sort of strategy and the business issues. And that third on people, I usually am splitting between the people we have and where we want to go with them, how we want to organize them. But also I put a lot of time into recruitment and trying to support our recruitment efforts. Um, So that's an ideal day and an ideal week breaks out that way. Um, There's unfortunately, there's sometimes tension between ideal and typical. And I will say as we grow, That there's a battle that last third, that sort of administrative, you know, strategic, sometimes strategic, sometimes administrative part of the CEO rule, um, ends up absorbing more time. And so uh, on a bad day, I feel that that part of the that part of the day uh, gets filled up, and I don't have a lot of time left for people within the company or outside the company or the clients. Um, But on a good day, I have that I have that balance figured out. Um, So I don't know if that. You know, I could go through a typical day on the calendar, but that's how I try to divide up the time. Got it. Okay. Now,
1: I mean, when you're, when you're doing these, you know, when you're doing these uh, customer visits, you know, doing customer development, I mean, if you had to pare it down to just one question, you know, the most important, you can, the most important question you can ask when you're talking to uh, or visiting a customer, what would that one question be?
0: Um, That one's easy. So we, I I will ask somebody uh, what's important here today. What's going on here today? And the reason is is that for our clients, when we're there, they sometimes get drawn into talking about our system or the work we're doing with them or something that's more narrow. I want to know if I'm sitting with the Navy. I want to know what the the biggest issue is in that area of the Navy today. Uh, What's the biggest issue at Medicare today? what's where are you guys investing? It's the same question you asked me. I asked them, where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your resources? And once we know that we can align the work we do with what matters to them rather than try to, um, drive the conversation directly into the details
1: of, you know, how we work or the new capabilities we're offering. Awesome. Okay. Makes sense. I think that's a beautiful question to ask. Okay. What's one must read book you'd recommend to everyone?
0: Um, you know, there's, there's some obvious ones out there. The one that I have benefited from most over time is a book called The Goal, um, G-O-A-L, and it's actually a book on uh, that, that talks about um, theory, of man- theory of constraints within manufacturing. Um, what I like about it is that I think one of the biggest challenges I face as an entrepreneur and even as the business has grown is prioritization. And there's some really good thinking in that book on, how to to prioritize and how to address your bottlenecks to growth as you're facing different challenges within the business. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, sometimes you just got to go raise finance and you got to get that money. Sometimes it's getting the next deal. You know, at certain points in our business, we had to get the capabilities and the packages together to get the upsell formula right. Um, I try to hone in on what is the biggest barrier we're facing and how can I put my time into addressing that barrier? And the goal, um, even though it comes at it somewhat from a manufacturing standpoint, really drove that thinking home for me.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic book. And I think it's required reading not only for, for entrepreneurs, but for you know, their executive teams as well, just to kind of drive that point home. Because they have their you know, main bottlenecks too, right?
0: Yeah, and, and it's this idea of like people get spread too thin in, in everything. And you know, I, I, had a, I just had a person on our team you know, show me how she's divided up her time. And it was almost like, it was almost like a diversified portfolio, you know, she had, she had 5% in 20 different buckets. And I I said, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to kick ass in the next year, you're going to have, it's going to look more like, you know, 40, 40, 20. Um, Because once you're starting to spread your time across 20 different things, you know, it's it's hard to even keep track of what you're accomplishing day to day. And I, I actually think that, you know, I, I, I just handed that book out yesterday. I keep some copies of it around. I think it's really important. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a
1: book that I think uh, Jeff Bezos makes all his executives read. So, I mean, that shows you just kind of how important it is. But, um, yeah, Scott, I, I mean. First.
0: I was doing it way before him. <laughs> I, I didn't even know that. I didn't know that he made everyone read it. That's, that's encouraging. I thought I was coming up with a, with a slightly unusual one for a tech business. I guess I should pay more attention.
1: no not not at all it's it's i I think you know geniuses come up with with these you know smart ideas and people tend to uh for people like me start to copy you know you and jeff bezos so um that's a testament (laughs) to you guys but scott this has been fantastic what's the best way for people to find you online uh
0: probably twitter sm burns um I'm, i'm responsive there and uh Gosh, you know, after 15 years, if you can't find a way uh, to reach me and connect with me online, I'm sure my home address is out there. But uh, Twitter is the most convenient.
1: <laughs> great. Well, everyone, this is Scott Burns from Gov Delivery. Make sure you check it out. Scott, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. This was great. Hey, everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called "29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins." We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICKTIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K, and TIPS, T-I-P-S s's in sugar, to 33444 and you get instant access.